Welcome back to All Things Con Amor. I am your host, Stephanie Arnuk, and today I am so pleased to introduce you all to Dr. Katherine Tucker, a professor of nutritional epidemiology and the director of the Center for Population Health at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Having completed her PhD in nutritional sciences from Cornell University and her experience in the Peace Corps, Dr. Tucker is a wealth of knowledge. She has contributed to over 400 articles in scientific journals, and her research focuses on the connection between dietary intake and the risk of chronic disease with things like osteoporosis, cognitive decline, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and heart disease with a big emphasis on health disparities. She is such a fantastic guest, and this conversation covered so much from how to speed up our metabolism, supportive supplements, foods you should be eating and avoiding, Uh, we talked about the keto diet, and so much more. As editor-in-chief for the American Society for Nutrition, she is the most knowledgeable and credible professional I've ever come across in regards to a topic that we all love to know more about, which is food. I hope you're ready to take notes and listen to this episode for a second time over because I personally learned so much from her in the hour that we spoke and even more throughout the editing process. Enjoy. It went from most states having less than 10% obese to now most states having more than 30% obese. A huge epidemic that, you know, it can't explain by all of a sudden everybody being lazy. And they're labeled low fat and people think, oh, that's healthy, it's low fat. My own research, having looked at outcomes like cognitive decline over aging, bone loss over years, glucose control, hypertension, the diet that works the best for all of these is All Things Con Amor is the pursuit of holistic health, wellness, happiness, love, the things that really set our soul on fire. Enjoy the ride. I am so excited to have you here today, Dr. Tucker. Uh, To get started, for our listeners, could you give us a little bit of background about how it is that you got into nutrition and the path you took to complete your PhD? Well, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. And um, I've been passionate about nutrition ever since I was in high school. Um, My mother was a good cook, and I used to enjoy cooking with her. And I got interested in nutrition by reading some um, books that were coming out way back then uh, by Adele Davis on on natural foods. At that time, it was a little extreme. You you couldn't eat chocolate brownies. You had to have carob brownies and things like that. But it was interesting. So I I tried out a lot of those things. And um, and I I also like science. So when I went to university, I started out in chemistry. And um, while I enjoy chemistry, I still had this interest in nutrition and I found out, I didn't know before, but I found out when I got to the university, you can major in nutrition. So I, um, at the University of Connecticut, I joined the nutritional sciences program, which kind of blends chemistry and cooking and health and everything together. Um, And it was just the right major for me. And um, during that time, I, I learned so much in my classes. They were all wonderful. Um, but I learned about how important nutrition is, um, and we take it for granted so much here, but in a lot of places, um, people don't survive because they don't have enough food. And I got interested in that, so I went 
and joined the Peace Corps. And I went to the Philippines where I worked with mother's classes and um, you know, tried to teach women about how to take care of their infants. It was hard because I saw very malnourished babies. I saw children with vitamin A deficiency and, and white eyes due to blindness from that. Um, but it really cemented to me how important nutrition is and nutrition interventions. And um, that, so then I went to Cornell and I, I actually majored in, in nutritional sciences with a focus on international nutrition coming back from the Philippines um, and, uh, and learned more about nutritional epidemiology and how to, because uh, I saw a lot of interventions, um, nutrition interventions that don't work everywhere, you know, there they were using like Western food to re refeed babies. And then when they sent them home, they would lose weight again. It wasn't, it wasn't a good intervention. And here we try to lose weight all the time. We have all these things, people pay millions of dollars, billions of dollars for it, and, and they often don't work. So when I learned about nutritional epidemiology, I learned that you could get a sense of what, is, what are the factors contributing to getting to this malnourished situation in the first place? And also, how can you measure interventions to make sure that they're effective or to find out if they're effective and you don't want to waste your, your health dollars if they're not? So um, epidemiology was a whole new revelation to me, and so I, I focused on that. Then... Um, my first position after, after university at Cornell with my PhD was at McGill University in Canada. And from there, I was following my international work. And so I worked in Kenya and Malawi, again, where women you know, had, had really difficult time maintaining sufficient nutrition for their pregnancies and their babies and worked in, in Kenya on complementary feeding. Um, because they're in situations where they didn't have enough food. We don't breastfeed enough here, but sometimes they breastfeed up to three years or more and, and they don't have enough complementary food. So, so I was working in that area and I loved it, but then I got married and, you know, so it's, a, it's kind of things happen in life and you follow your path. And um, my husband was in Boston. So I moved to Tufts Human Nutrition Research Center on aging. So this was a huge change for me because I was going from mothers and children in developing countries to older aging adults in the United States. It was part of the USDA mandate. USDA mandate. So I had to do a lot of um, learning about that. But what I realized was my epidemiology skills and my basic nutrition skills were the same. It was just another target group. And I learned at that time how poor nutrition actually is in the United States. We don't have vitamin A deficiency blindness, but we have overnutrition in terms of obesity and, and high lipids, but also so many vitamins and minerals and particularly phytochemicals and nutrients from natural foods are missing because of our processed food diet. So I got into looking at um, at the diets of people as they go across their adult lives and, and seeing how those contribute to heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, and other things like that. And that's where I'm still working. That is so incredible. Thank you for giving us such a concise but 
intriguing overview of your life. I think something I always try to highlight on this podcast are all of the different ways that you can pursue the things you love. For example, up until this past year, I had no idea you could major in nutrition. And I've always loved learning about food. And so I sometimes question like if I had more exposure to different possible career paths when I was 18, 19, 20, like how that would have impacted my college years and whether I would have majored in something else and still done medical school, whether I would have even done medical school. Um, But I think things happen the way they're supposed to. So I think it's also incredible that you've seen really opposite ends of the spectrum where here we have the obesity epidemic, but you've also seen how unfortunate it is when there's not enough food to go around. So I think for our listeners to be grateful that we do have enough to eat and that isn't something that we struggle with. Uh, But then also for our listeners to start to learn a little bit about the things you've come to see in our lack of nutrients. So uh, aside from nutrients, what is the craziest misconception you often hear about nutrition? Um, it can be something people think is healthy, but isn't, or something that you just hear often that is just not correct. Well, there's so many, I mean, because what the problem we have here is that we, we have a food industry that is trying to sell us things and they're trying to get health claims and they're trying to make things healthy. And so we've gone through a pretty important learning um, experience with the with the um, the heart hypothesis and the and the high fat issue, uh, focusing on a single thing. So so in the 1960s and 70s and and still people are doing it, thinking that the only problem with our diet is high fat. So what did we get? We got lots of low fat products, commercial products that are actually refined, have no fiber full of sugar and refined starch and artificial flavors and colors and they're labeled low fat and people think oh that's healthy it's low fat but it's not at all in fact um now people are revisiting what happened and and realizing that this whole focus on low fat has led us to move to this high refined carb diet which is just as bad, if not worse, and is contributing to the rise in diabetes that we see so much here now. So, you know, when you see, I think the, the, the most misconceptions are people buy the commercial products, they say low fat. For a while then we had low carb because we switched to, okay, we're having too many carbs, so low carb. But those were also not good quality products. Um, we also have the gluten-free craze right now. And now celiac patients absolutely need to be gluten-free. And some people have some gluten intolerance and they can be tested for that. But I know so many people that don't have that at all and somehow think gluten-free is good for them. And, and they're passing around gluten-free snacks that are like these little pretzel things that are they're super yes, processed. processed they're so processed. Ugh. And they don't have the nutrients. So so those, it's really a matter of being careful of the things that are marketed as healthy, but are not natural foods. The new thing now, um, everybody's moving to, to plant-based milks like oat and almond milk. They're not unhealthy. There's nothing wrong with them. But what's wrong is that they don't have the calcium and some of the other nutrients that cow's milk does. Some of them are fortified, but not to the same extent. So you need to be careful with them. I know I went to visit my friend and she said, oh, I love this almond milk. And she took it out and she said, because it stays good for two weeks. <laughs> Looking at this 
ingredient list. And so there are different levels of those, but you have to be careful what you choose. And of course, if you're avoiding lactose and, and dairy for other reasons, they're fine, but they're not as healthy in the pure nutritional sense as cow's milk. Impossible burgers are another thing. All the new um, plant-based meats, everybody thinks now it went from low fat to low carb and now plant-based. And so plant-based diet is a good thing and we're, we're trying to move in that direction, but fake plant-based foods as some veggie burgers are full of, um, you know, soy protein that's isolated and then has other additives in it. And it's not really a whole food. It's still a highly processed food and the impossible burgers. If you look at the list of ingredients, you will see that it's, it's a bunch of chemicals and processed foods. It is I've not- I've had one. I'm yeah. sure that getting it to taste like meat takes a lot of different ingredients. Yes, this kind of simulated hemoglobin and all kinds of things. So it's fine. I'm not saying any of these things are, you can't have them, but they have this health halo that is above what they really are. And you need to be careful. I think the, it, the real bottom line is the, is the processing. Other things are like granola bars and energy drinks, uh, sugar-free products, all those things make it sound like they've been altered to be more healthy, but they've only been altered to have a different ingredient list. And if you read the label, most of them are highly processed. In sugar-free, you've got these artificial sweeteners, and we've been learning there, there's a lot of differences across them, um, but some of them have been related to cancer risk. And others have been related to not being helpful to lose weight because they're not read by the body the same way natural foods are. And so the brain doesn't, you may drink diet soda, but the brain doesn't register that you're full. So it isn't as helpful as you think. And it may be putting your body at risk by introducing foreign substances. And it's so interesting because um, I've read up a lot on this and I think People tend to be calorie crazy and make sure they're counting their calories, but then they end up hungry because they're eating these processed foods. And like you said, exactly. the sugary soda and your body is taking in these calories and you feel hungrier, if anything, than you did before, because you crave it even more. So exactly. I, yeah, I also, I, I do um, sometimes listen to these episodes and I'm like, okay, so all of these things are bad. So what am I supposed to do? So we've, we've talked about the things that aren't great, but what do you think we can add in as a staple? So something that is an essential staple that everyone should have in their diet. Mm-hmm. Well, there's not just one. That's the thing. It's, you know, people always want the one bullet fix, but um, it's really a balanced diet. And I would say if there's one thing to focus on, my own research, having looked at outcomes like um, cognitive decline over, over aging, um, bone loss over, over years, glucose control, hypertension, the diet that works the best for all of these is the Mediterranean diet. And so the simplest way to say, what should I eat? It's follow the Mediterranean diet. There seems to be, uh, you know, something really, really important about including things like olive oil instead of our highly refined processed oils. 
most people don't realize that things like corn oil or safflower oil are, are made with this refining process that sometimes can have contaminants, but also loses some of the polyphenolic compounds that are beneficial. So that's why cold pressed oils are, are always better. I know they're more expensive, but, but the PREDIMED um, intervention in Spain showed that by giving people olive oil, they, they lowered their heart disease risk. And wow. So just the cold pressed and following the Mediterranean diet. Okay. Cold pressed cold pressed olive, olive oil. oil. Yeah, virgin olive oil is like wonderful. Nuts. This is the other thing. It used to be that we would, if you were like, say you went out to get a drink, beer or something, they would give you peanuts, right? Um, now what do they give you? They give you these these salted flour-based multi-shaped crackers. You know, these snack mix. <laughs> um, so nuts, it turns out, um, that's another one people thought might be bad because they're high in fat, right? So, so they were avoiding fat. They were avoiding nuts and avocados, which both turn out have very good quality fat, monounsaturated fat, and other polyphenolic compounds that seem to be very beneficial especially for heart disease. So one thing that's really has a major effect, and there's been several studies now that have demonstrated it, is to replace your other snacking with just have a handful of nuts a day. Replace your cheap oils with olive oil for salad. Oh, salad dressings are the other thing to avoid. Bottled salad dressings are full of sugars and, and sodium and artificial flavors and all kinds of things. So the best thing is just to use your olive oil. You can experiment with different kinds of vinegars, balsamic vinegar, apple cider vinegar, wine vinegar, put in some herbs. Herbs mm. also have all these polyphenolic compounds, okay. more fresh herbs and people have lost that. You see what, what's happened is the food industry has replaced all these natural foods that have chemicals that our body evolved with and they found that they can make things very cheaply with refined sugar, refined flour, refined oils, artificial flavor, and artificial color. So and there's much more of a profit have, margin. They, they have a longer shelf life, mm -hmm. a higher profit margin, but they don't have these phytochemicals, these nutrients that help us keep down inflammation and subclinical inflammation because of this processed diet is, is an epidemic most people don't know about. It's, yeah. it's what comes before all this chronic disease. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have a study where we measured something called C-reactive protein, and mm -hmm. it's so high. It should really only be high when you have infection, but it's so high in so many people because they don't have the anti-inflammatory components of the diet, which tend to be not just the vitamins and minerals, but all these things like flavonoids and, and other kinds of phytonutrients that help with inflammation and with oxidative stress. And so mm -hmm. we're not getting that protection. And because people don't really understand that, they think, oh, if I take a vitamin pill, I'm getting all my vitamins. But, but what we know now is, yes, vitamin deficiencies are critical, like I saw in the Philippines with vitamin A deficiency or iron deficiency and anemia. But once you've got those at the levels you need them, more is not necessarily better. In fact, you mm -hmm. can have too much. And what you're still missing 
are all these hundreds of chemicals that are in natural foods that mm -hmm. we've lost. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, the Mediterranean diet focuses on olive oil, nuts, lots of fruits and vegetables. All good diets have lots of fruits and vegetables. And, um, you know, not excluding meat. There are some people saying eat no meat, eat no eggs, eat no dairy. I do not agree with that. I think all of those things are natural foods and excellent in moderation. Mm -hmm. um, but then emphasizing more seafood because we also are low in omega-3 fatty acids. So Right, like salmon. Salmon, right. Yeah. Mac salmon, mackerel, sardines um, are all, all important in order to get those omega-3s. And, and the, the jury's out on the supplements. I mean, they've done lots of trials of omega-3 supplements and somehow the fish twice a week works better than the supplements. Probably because like everything, it's, it's a part of a natural food matrix. Yeah. And things work together. Just like dairy product, like uh, yogurt, they're now doing for bone mineral density. Um, you know, we used to give women calcium supplements at menopause. And then they did the big women's health initiative trial and they found that it wasn't as helpful as they thought, that if women stopped the calcium supplements, their bones revert, meaning that the calcium supplements helped for a while, but they, they didn't help in a healthy way. And um, also there were more kidney stones and calcium deposits, like calcium deposits in the arteries, which can contribute to atherosclerosis. So, you, you know, calcium pills on their own, taken away from everything else, anything taken out of the natural matrix and put into a pill and taken at a large dose is likely to have side effects. So now they're doing trials with yogurt. You know, if you eat yogurt, it's good for your microbiome, which we also know is a mess because of all this processed food. We used to eat more fermented foods or cultured foods, and they're pretty uh, absent in the diet of many Americans. But the dairy matrix has the protein, the potassium, the calcium, the magnesium, all that work together in order to build your bones at the same time. So um, that's why I, I, you know, you asked me about some supplements. There are some supplements you should take if you need them, but, but foods, um, you know, whole foods are the main issue and a whole foods diet will add years to your life. I have no doubt after looking at many, many, many cohort studies. I, I agree. I've read that's basically the general consensus. I really appreciate you breaking down the Mediterranean diet for our listeners because I think often it's so easy to just say, oh, just eat the Mediterranean diet, but then people don't know what to go buy at their grocery store. So we've got the fruits, the vegetables, the nuts, the salmon. And um, in terms of uh, everything we just discussed, could you really briefly just break down what the flavonoids are and the phyto... Um, more about phytochemicals. What are they for the average non-STEM person? Well, there's there's hundreds of them. And so there's like flavones, flavanols, flavonoids. There's, and then there's there's other classes of alkaresorcinols. And they're, they're, they're chemicals that are in, like there's a whole class of chemicals. You've heard that onions and garlic are good for you. Yeah. They have certain chemicals that are very good. Ginger, you know, some of these herbs and spices have chemicals that are very good. And there's literally hundreds of them. And we, we talk about a limited number of vitamins and minerals. 
but these phytonutrients in fruits and vegetables and whole grains mm-hmm. um, are are critical. Uh, We're still mapping them out. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to. Oh, for, sorry. No, especially for the uh, the antioxidant effects and the and the inflammatory effects, and that's this, this whole subclinical inflammation is really new in our human history, and it's because of our processed food. It, it, yeah, I, it's so noticeable. My mom talks about how my mom is Colombian. She grew up in Colombia, South America. And when she was in her early 20s, when she was about my age, she was an international synchronized swimmer. So she would go to other countries oh. for competitions. <laughs> and she always talks about how she grew up with like everything was fresh food, everything was prepared, like right at home. Um, and when she came to America specifically and they gave her team orange juice, the girls were so sick because they were used to growing up with like freshly squeezed orange juice every morning. And then they had a cup of like processed American orange juice and they were like, what is this? Um, so I think that's a really good way to, to just show that the body has, we've gotten so used to these processed things, but we're not meant to be consuming them. Like they're not good for us. We're not healthy. We're Mm -hmm. You know they're keeping us alive. The doctor, you you will be, um, but uh, you know. But if you look at the average number of pills that most adults are on, it's you know, a lot. We, we, we eat this junk and then we take pills for our cholesterol and our blood pressure and our inflammation and everything. And mm-hmm. and it's um, it it works um, to a certain extent, but it, it's not optimal health. And, and we don't feel good. And, and we don't feel good. There's mm-hmm. so much. The other thing I'm noticing in my studies is there's, there's so much depression. People are just down. And that's part of it as well. That, that is uh, related to the inflammation and also um, to the lack of some of the, even the vitamins that we don't get enough of. I mean, there are ser- several what we call nutrients of risk and and so vitamin B6 is one that I study a lot because that's in, it's easily destroyed with processing. So it's in natural foods in a variety of foods. But if you're eating mostly processed foods, you know, think, think about flour. We add back thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, iron, and now folic acid. Because when they refined flour, we had deficiency diseases. We had beriberi, we had pellagra, we had all this stuff. And so they've added those back and they added folic acid now recently because they realized that lack of folate, which is another B vitamin in in fresh vegetables and and fruits, green leafy vegetables, was low in the population. It was related to neural tube defects in in pregnant women. It was causing increases in spina bifida. Exactly. Mm -hmm. A terrible thing. So they realized that that's out of the white flour too. So they put that back in. But they still don't put in B6 or B12. Well, B12 is only in animal foods to begin with, so it wouldn't, wouldn't have ever been in flour. But, but B6 and B12 are now really important nutrients that as people age, we see the slow deficiencies in those taking a toll on them. And we've seen a very clear between, we measure the B6 and B12 in the blood, and we see clear relations with... Um, with B6, it's, it's really clearly related to diabetes and diabetes control. Um, B12 oh. is related to cognitive decline. And a lot of people don't know they have B12 deficiency because that is one nutrient 
that, well, if you're a vegetarian, you know you need to supplement it, but because it's only in animal foods. But if you're if you're a normal omnivore, um, a lot of people lose stomach acid as they get older, and then there are drug interactions. So that if you use things like um, Prilosec or um, acid blockers, ACE inhibitors, then it it doesn't allow the B12 to be broken from the protein in your animal products. And so it's not absorbed. And so you get this slow deficiency. And so even if you're eating it, the medications you're you're on will not allow your body to absorb it. Wow. Exactly. So, so anybody above 50, we've seen, well, we looked at the Framingham heart study. We found about 16% of the population, which is an average American middle-class population Mm -hmm. was deficient in vitamin B12. Wow. So at older ages. It takes Mm -hmm. a long time um, because it is one of the water-soluble vitamins that is stored in the liver, but it's one that is kind of a silent creeping deficiency with age that people need to be aware of. I tell everybody, you know, if you're, if you're worried about it, um, or if you're taking, if you're taking any of these acid blockers, you can overcome it with a large dose of vitamin B12. Okay. So enough will be absorbed because it's already separated from the protein. So you, you heard me, I'm natural, 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 but there is this one situation. There's two supplements that, that I recommend. One is B12. If you're taking any of these acid blockers, or if you, if you have any idea that you may have low stomach acid, um, early symptoms would be like tingling in the fingers and, and, um, and, it progresses to loss of balance and, and serious neurological deterioration, but, but um, it doesn't hurt you to take a B12 as you age. The other is vitamin D, which we now know is so much more important for so many things, including risk and progression of multiple sclerosis and other neurological diseases that we, we used to just think about it for bones, but it, it's also been associated with depression and cognition as well. So vitamin, we've discovered there's lots of vitamin D receptors in the body. And so most people don't have enough vitamin D. Why? Well, we evolved in the sun, um, but now we've got a situation where the ozone layer is thinner. The sun is more dangerous. Um, You know, so we, we worry about skin cancer. And so people put on sunscreen before they even go out at all. And they um, are not using the fortified dairy products, especially adults are not using that much fortified milk. Um, So vitamin D deficiency is very common. Even if you go out in the winter, you can't get it in in Boston. So, and Northern northern climates. So I take vitamin D in the winter. In the summer, I go out for like 15 minutes before I put on sunscreen. Okay, that's that's really good advice. vitamin D conversion. Yeah. Yeah. Because people don't realize that it does need to be converted. Um, And I think it's interesting that you mentioned we evolved out in the sun, but we don't talk about how we are not meant to sit inside all day. And we're not meant to sit. Like I, I took a family member to the chiropractor the other day and he was asking like, okay, what kind of chair can I get to help my lower back pain? The chiropractor was like, don't sit, like, don't get it. There is no chair because humans are not meant to sit. Or his advice was to get up every 15 minutes to re-engage the muscles. So for anyone that was wondering how that came out, but yeah, a lot of the things we spend all of our days doing, we're not 
meant to be doing. So I think it's interesting to kind of focus on ways we can reverse that. Um, it's actually a, and, new, a whole new way of looking at this activity now beyond, you know, what do you do for, for aerobic activity or whatever, that it's the opposite is how sed sedentary activity itself is, is negative beyond, you know, just that, just, just not getting up for hours at a time. And they are recommending that get up every, you know, at least every hour, get up and, and take a, a five minute walk around or something, but, but people don't do it. They don't, but I hope that through conversations like this, they will kind of start to at least be a little more cognizant because I think a big issue that people have is that they don't know where to start. Like it's it's so easy to be very overwhelmed with all of the information on the internet, and all of the things people are constantly pushing. So I love these super digestible, like hour long conversations where you go on a walk or you're driving and you can just learn little things to be cognizant of. One of the other questions we had for you was how can we keep our metabolism running well? I think that's a really big thing. People worry that their metabolism is slow, especially after they have been on like a restrictive diet or they are aging. They worry that like, oh, I'm getting old and my metabolism is going to kick out. What would your advice be for that? Well, they are right. And that is one of the, one of the things with aging is that um, your metabolism slows down. It's very challenging. And once you I mean, it's kind of depressing, but once you hit 30, things start to go downhill very slowly, <laughs> but they do unless you keep up. And, and so um, your metabolism slows, so you need less food, but you need more nutrients because your organs aren't sufficient at processing them. So you actually need a higher quality diet as you age. So the main thing is to make sure that you're getting all your nutrients including those phytonutrients with something like the Mediterranean diet, but also to keep your metabolism running well with exercise by not doing all that sitting, um, but by making sure even if you do have a sitting job that you um, incorporate some aerobic training during, during the week. It can, it can, it doesn't have to be a marathon, you know, you just uh, walking, walking for a half hour, four or five days a week can make, it has been shown to make a difference in, in how long people live. Um, and then the other thing that, that people tend not to think about as much that is turning out to be even more important, well, I wouldn't say more, but equally important for metabolism is strength training. And that is because as our metabolism slows and we become more sedentary, we start to lose muscle mass. And so your metabolism works ideally when you have good quantity of lean body mass. When your body shifts from mostly lean body mass to mostly fat mass, your metabolism gets worse and everything gets worse. So, um, so strength training, again, it doesn't have, have to be in a fancy gym with the big equipment and things, but it can just be dumbbells. Um, my, my colleague at Tufts wrote a book called Strong Women Stay Young, where she just recommended things you could do in the home with, um, you know, the, the weights with the arms and then wrapping um, the, there's these weights that you can, with Velcro that you can wrap around your ankles and lift your legs. 
Um, so even if, I mean, ideal, if you can go to Pilates and go to do all the machines, that's great, but not everybody can do that. You can actually do your own strength training. There are videos online and you just need some, some fairly inexpensive weights, um, but you should make sure that you exercise your muscles to maintain that lean body mass. That also requires, sometimes you hear people say, oh, Americans have too much protein. And that's not really true. Um, especially as people age, you need to have protein along with strength training to maintain your muscle mass. What people, when they say people have too much protein, what they're really saying is they eat too much meat, which is true. Now meat's not the enemy, but too much is not good for you. So, so, um, focusing more on plant-based proteins is, is turning out to be really important. So, um, using more legumes. Legumes are something that seems to be lost in the American diet, but, you know, rice and beans are a staple of many countries, including, I think, you know, rice and corn and beans in, in Colombia. I grew up with that. Yeah. Rice and yes. beans on the side of every meal. Yeah. So those beans and the nuts, you know, those nuts, seeds, and beans um, have plant-based protein. They come with dietary fiber. They come with some of these phytonutrients that are, that are healthy. So, um, getting that protein in plant-based sources along with strength training can help keep your metabolism in good shape. Okay. Fantastic. I also love that quarantine made strength training and exercising at home so much more accessible and normalized. I even saw some videos on social media where people did whole workouts with cans, like canned goods as like yes. one pound weights. Yeah, yeah. It's not that hard. It doesn't have to be doesn't two hours be a day. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a, an awesome point for people to keep in mind. Um, I have seen a lot of people lately leaning towards the keto diet, and we were also wondering what your opinion is of that. Yes, sure. Um, I, I was just visiting a friend who's on the keto diet. <laughs> and and the, the truth is that it can help you lose weight. It is an effective weight loss diet. Um, it, it's also in the literature and in science, it's being used for some neurologic diseases. It's, it has some benefits. I've seen bipolar disorder is being treated with that. Yeah, and epilepsy and things like that. But that's a therapeutic use. I do not recommend it for, for the average person um, because most people that lose weight with it, they cannot maintain it. It's a very restrictive diet and they the weight tends to come on back on pretty fast if you if you stop. So that's one thing. But beyond that, if you stay on it for a long time, it's low in fiber, which we need, and it's low in, in vegetables, including even things like, you know, beans. Um, and so it's low, it's actually low in certain vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients. It's not a balanced diet. It's high in saturated fat. It could make your heart, your lipids worse, although sometimes it it doesn't in the short run. So I'd say if you if you want to lose it in the short run, you want to lose weight because you want to fit into a wedding dress or something like that, you know, people do. Um, it's not going to hurt you as long as you're healthy. Um, but it's not something that is healthy to stay on for a long time because it's not balanced. 
I agree with that. And I've seen a lot of people talk about how they tried to keep it, were going for long term and they had these huge crashes in energy because your brain prefers glucose to ketones. So I appreciate you giving that advice from a professional standpoint. I mean, you're you're putting your body into starvation mode. It's also ketones are hard on your kidneys. Mm -hmm. Um, They're they're just, and then, then you, you have constipation because of the low fiber and, you know, they call it the keto flu. You just don't have strength. It's just, it's not a healthy diet. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting concept that, that has some specific applications, but I, I do not recommend it in general. And so on those terms, what would you advise people that want to cook healthily and they want to try to lose weight in a measured way that isn't super fast and is maintainable, but they claim that they have such a busy schedule and they're never home? How would you balance that out? Well, I understand that it's really hard to get started with cooking. I mean, I, I was just, um, my son and his wife were, were living with us for a while and they are so used to eating out all the time you know, and buying packaged prepared things that are highly processed. So I had to work on them, but <laughs> get them to learn to cook. Because a lot of people <laughs> just never learn to cook. Um, yeah. so- Me being one of them. My grandmother's an excellent cook and she always cooked for us. And so when I moved out, I had to figure out how to not burn everything. Yes. Yeah. There is a little bit of skill involved, but, um, but it's worth it. And I think the main thing is to try and develop a really positive relationship with Food, if you pay attention to the taste of fresh fruit, and then you taste the artificial flavors in some of these fruit flavored things, you know, once you really focus on it kind of mindfully, um, it's actually hard to go back to the junk, you know? And, and, and so it's, it's really a matter of taking, making the effort for, for a while to get used to it. But there's a few things that, that have really helped um, me. I mean, we're, we're busy. And, and one of the inventions that has like radicalized my life is, is called an instant pot. Oh, yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, so instead of buying canned beans, you can, you can take dried beans, which retain more nutrients. And, and, and you can put those in this instant pot. And it can cook. It's like a pressure cooker. You can cook very quickly. Um, you know, you can, you can put things together in there, make nice stews and soups. And those are actually much healthier than frying food, you know, to have things cooked in a water base, it retains the nutrients in that, in that kind of pressure situation. And it, it doesn't create some of those um, bad chemicals that you get with frying. And so, so I think the instant pot, having more stews and soups, the other thing I tell people is if you're cooking, you know, try to make it fun, put on music, but cook enough to have more than you need that day. So you can put it in a container and freeze it. So you come home another night, you just take out your, your beans or your chili or your, you know, your minestrone or whatever it is um, that you have. Um, some people are, are worried about buying, you know, fruits and vegetables because they don't last as well. And, and so they want everything canned or frozen. But if you just make a plan to once a week, check all your vegetables and make some kind of soup, you can just then freeze it and you don't have any waste. The other thing I do is once a week, 
I take whatever fruit, you know, I haven't picked up and eaten. I try to use fruit as snacks rather than refined crackers or things like that. Fruit, um, but anything that, that looks like it needs to be used, make, make yourself a nice fruit salad. And it's so much easier to eat a lot of fruit in a fruit salad somehow than just to eat one at a time, but it's still fresh. I put mint in it. So you just have to have to find some time once a week to kind of prepare it, make your, get your carrots and celery and clean them and put them in a container so that when you want a snack, you're not tempted to go to the cheese, you're tempted to go to your vegetables. There's lots of little tricks. And I think you can find, probably find a lot of tricks like that on the internet, but you, you just, you have to make some effort, but once you do and get it incorporated into your lifestyle, it's really not that hard. It's so worth it. And I think people sometimes think like, oh, the ingredients are going to cost so much and then they're going to go bad if I don't use them. But in reality, like buying dried beans and lentils in bulk is so affordable. So you get so many meals out of it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, nuts are expensive. And and I realize that, but I buy big containers of mixed nuts. And I look at the label and I see how many servings are in there. And then I see what a bag of potato chips costs, right? And so for this thing of nuts, I could buy four bags of potato chips, but those potato chips could go in, in eight servings, but there's 30 servings in this big jar of mixed nuts. And it'll actually so, fill you up, whereas the potato chips will leave you hungrier. Exactly. The nuts, they've done studies on because people were afraid, oh, nuts are high fat, so people have been avoiding it. They'll make me gain weight. They've actually done studies showing that if you incorporate nuts as a snack, people don't gain weight because they feel more full. It's true. That's neat. Yeah. People get so worried and hung up on calories, but then they overeat later on because they haven't had enough. And that was something I struggled with for a little while where it was like, oh, I, I had like so much chocolate or such a bad, like sugary snack that I'm like, oh, maybe I just should watch what I eat later. But then I end up hungrier because the big dessert did not, yeah. it might've been high that, calories, but I was hungry. You get that spike and then it goes down. Yes. So, so yeah, so, so it, our, our appetite and our, our satiety, our whole relationship with signaling in our bodies to our brain is very complicated. Mm-hmm. And that's why, I, I, again, go back to the real food and all those chemicals, the body's used to recognizing those and giving you the proper signals. But when you put artificial chemicals, it doesn't and, know what to do and with refined it. food that has no chemicals and just mm-hmm. spikes your glucose, um, you mess it, you mess up the signal. It really confused And that is why I I think that we have this obesity epidemic right now. It's because Mm -hmm. people just, I mean, it's not that everybody just went crazy. It's just that the foods they're eating don't make them. Right. And so it's, it's not, it's not, I think people tend to put so much blame on themselves and the individuals and they don't look at the bigger picture and all the things that are contributing to it. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's, 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 it's hard to believe mm-hmm. if you if you look at the at the CDC graphs of the prevalence of obesity from 1990 to now. Mm-hmm. It went to from most states having less than 10% obese to now most states having more than 30% obese, and that's it's not just overweight. That's obese. Radical so multiplied. That yeah. is a huge epidemic that 
you know, it can't explain by all of a sudden everybody being lazy. No. Right. It's, it's our food supply. Mm-hmm. It's the marketing, it's the food supply, it's the environment, it's what everyone else is doing. So I'm so grateful for conversations like these for that reason. And I really hope to help my patients with preventative medicine. I would much rather get them to start walking five times a week and speaking with a registered dietitian than automatically prescribing them a weight loss pill. Exactly. Weight mm-hmm. loss pills. So far, we don't have really safe ones. So Right. They, they make dangerous. me really nervous. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yes, I, I totally agree with you. Prevention is the way. It's a lot easier to prevent weight gain than to lose it. Losing it is very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, can be done. People do it all the time. But, um, but it's much better to maintain your healthy diet. One thing I tell people, you know, they used to not say this, but I... They have, a, they have a registry of people who've lost weight and kept it off. What do they do? They maintain their exercise, they eat real food, and they weigh themselves every day. Because if you really? don't pay attention- It's easy for it to sneak up All on of a you. sudden, you've got 10 pounds and you hadn't really noticed other than your clothes are tight. But if you weigh yourself every day and you say, okay, I'm up two pounds, psychologically, you can cut back and it, there's the body also reacts pretty quickly. Like if you go on vacation and you gain three pounds, if you go back and you're really careful for the next month, that those three pounds will go away. But if you ignore that and you gain another three pounds, once those three pounds have been on for a few months, they're hard to get off. Right it after you gain your- it, it's easiest to lose it. Okay. I've heard, yeah, that, that whole notion of like your body has a set point that it's comfortable at. And, and so it, moving you, that set point is hard. at a higher level for a long time, that set point gets higher. Gets higher. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I love how knowledgeable you are about all of this. It's so nice to ask questions to someone that has studied it as extensively as you have and seen it in real life. So for all of the listeners who really want to go for something, but they know it's going to take a lot of time and dedication, um, just in any field, what would your advice for them be with how much you've accomplished in your field? Sure. Well, I, I think if you love what you do, that is number one. If you, if you really hate going to work, you should try to find a different, different position because it's your life. <laughs> so, so I, I guess what I would advise people to do is enjoy the journey. Don't worry so much about the destination all the time. Don't, don't, uh, you know, panic about temporary setbacks. Keep learning and and network. Maintain good relationships. People help each other out, and if they know. You love something. Students, in fact, I, you know, I teach. And so students sometimes are afraid to go to professors and, and, and talk to them more closely. Letting people know that you love what you want to do and letting them know what you want to do. People are, don't be afraid because people are always looking for good people to move into those positions. So I know so many students who are, who are like, oh, I can't talk to them, I'm, I'm too afraid. It's like, no, if you talk to them and they can see that you're really serious, there's opportunities out there, but you have to open yourself up to them. And, and networks and getting to know people is, is really the, that, along with doing a good job and learning and being responsible is, is really, um, you, you know, the world's open. There's so many opportunities. 
I totally agree. Like the notion of if you don't ask for something, it can never be yours because nobody knows you're looking for it. And I was that student in college that was scared to approach professors because I felt like if my question could be found in the textbook or could be Googled, they were going to think that I was lazy for not having read five chapters or something like that. And the more I have allowed myself to say it's okay to ask a question that other people probably have too, the more I've gotten opportunities and to know people. And it's so much easier to learn from someone explaining it to you than to try to look up a definition in a textbook on your own, because you have that response where the professor can tell if you're still confused and they're so happy and willing to help. So um, in any field, not just in a classroom. Yeah. Yeah, not just in a classroom. Right. It, it, like it is so important to, to show you, people that you're I interested. I can tell you that I have, I have hired so many students to work on my research projects because they came to me mm-hmm. and said they were interested in research and wanted to learn. And if they had never come to me, they would have never had that opportunity. So, Right. So ask, ask for the things you want, yeah. just like I asked Dr. Tucker to be a guest <laughs> on this show. Um, And I had one of my classmates actually uh, sent in this Q&A and asked what you think would be good resources that clinicians that want to be conversant in nutrition can use. For example, I know so many medical schools, they'll teach us like these diseases happen when you don't have enough vitamin D and E, but I I don't know what to eat for vitamin D and E. Like, like how would I advise my patients? So what resources you could point out to people that want to learn more? It's important. I mean, there's so much misinformation on the internet. So I'm sure most physicians are very aware that if people are trying to sell something, don't listen to them. But here's some good things. One, um, the National Institutes of Health Office of Dietary Supplements has fact pages for all the nutrients. The NIH NIH Office of Dietary Dietary Supplements. They have fact pages for all the nutrients and they keep up to date. Another place that has good information on on nutrients is the Linus Pauling Institute Micronutrient Information Center. They also have people keep updated information on, you know, what are the recommended intakes? What are the risks? What are the... um, food sources, uh, what are the diseases associated. So that's, that's another really excellent place to look for micronutrient information. Then for foods, if you want to look up what the content is, um, the, U- the USDA has something called Food Data Central. And so if you just Google that, you can find it. You can type in you know, any food and get the nutrient content. So if you're wondering... Um, you know, how much vitamin C is in green beans, you know, you Uh can find that like that. Now you just have to type it in. So it's great. Another one place that I recommend is, is it is a private uh, kind of foundation, but it's called the old ways preservation trust. I worked with them to help develop a a dietary period pyramid for the African um, diaspora. Um, But they are the ones that really started, uh, publicizing the Mediterranean diet and developed the first Mediterranean diet pyramid. And on their website, they have fabulous recipes. Oh, neat. Lots and okay. lots of excellent recipes for all these heritage, you know, they call themselves old ways mm-hmm. and their whole focus is using real food. Right. So it's, it's just a fantastic place for recipes mm-hmm. and, and information on the Mediterranean diet in particular. And then finally, I will give a, a plug for our own American Society of Nutrition journals. 
Okay. Um, I'm the editor of Advances in Nutrition, which is a review journal. So uh, if you look up advances, you go into the American Society for Nutrition, Advances in Nutrition, if you're interested in more depth mm-hmm. on a current topic, such as the keto diet or, um, you know, food insecurity or even some specific um, compounds or, or fatty acids, we often have um, a review article on that. So that would be up to date summary of information. I love review articles. They're yeah. so quick and easy. It's everything you need it all together. So um, this, but those are, those are re- very reliable sources of information. Okay. Just, just stay away from all those kind of infomercials, those things where they draw things and say this and this, and you listen to it for 20 minutes and then they try and sell you this new supplement mix they put. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, well, you you done, you happen to answer the last question I normally ask my guests, which is if people want to follow up with you, where can they find you? So I'm sure if, if people were to Google Dr. Catherine Tucker, they would find some of your research. Yes. And, and yeah, I, I do take questions from people. I, I know that I published something on B12 a while ago and I got a lot of individuals asking me questions and I, I may not be able to answer within 24 hours, but I will answer. Yes. <laughs> I always say better late than never. I'm, I'm the same way. I get to it. It doesn't, it's not always instant, but I always get to it. Right, right. Yeah, so you can, I'm at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Okay. And, um, and so you can find me there. You can find me at the American Society for Nutrition, Advances in Nutrition. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time and for your expertise in this conversation. I am so happy that we got to share your knowledge with all of my listeners. Well, I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode or learned anything from it at all, I would be so incredibly grateful if you shared it with a friend, family member, or on social media. You can tag us on Instagram at allthingsconamor, and you can tag me at Stephanie Arnick. Thank you again for spending your time with us, and we will see you when we see you.